The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. All right, let's open our Bibles now to 1 Corinthians 12, verse number 27. If you don't want to open there, I do have just this one verse to read that's going to be the text for the sermon tonight. 1 Corinthians 12:27, which says, Now ye are the body of Christ and members in particular. The subject again tonight is church membership. Ye are the body of Christ and members in particular. And that verse means that every member of the church has a place to fill that God has placed you in the church to help the church function in its full capacity, that God has given each of us spiritual gifts to use for the good of the body, and we're always to remember that although we are individuals in the church, yet we are not singular people in the church. Everything that we do is for the good of the body. And we're a body that works together for one purpose. There is no other purpose for this uh, than this. We don't do anything but this. And that is, unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Now, our study tonight has brought us to the S in the Baptist acrostic, which stands for a saved church membership. And that is a distinguishing mark of Baptist, which is inserted mostly into this acrostic to refute the doctrine of infant baptism. And in infant baptism, there are children that are brought into the church without personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Baptists maintain that you can't become a member of the church in that way. We believe that the church membership is regenerate because the church is joined to Christ. It is a part of Christ. It's holy. It's sanctified holy. And its, uh, its effect or its saving effects are appropriated to us by faith. And so the S in that acrostic deals primarily with this particular doctrine of a saved church membership. But that, that letter also affords us the opportunity to look into the issue of church membership in general. That is, what do we believe about church membership? Now, you look into the New Testament, and all Christians were members of the church. When they trusted Christ, they were baptized. And since baptism is the door into the church, then that would tell us that all of these early people were church members. There, weren't, there wasn't any such thing as unbaptized Christians in the first century, and so they were all church members. But today things have changed. <clears throat> there are many unbaptized Christians uh, because evangelists and Christian workers and churches have, have failed to emphasize the importance of baptism. And so you have these floater Christians that flit and float around. They're not attached to anybody, and they just go on as Christians, not members of church, in their ignorance of Christ's command. Now, some have uh, been baptized, but because of apathy or uh, some other reason, some maybe church discipline, they're no longer a part of the body, and so they don't have membership. And our study is about membership and the issues that are involved in church. And uh, church membership is more than just faith in Christ. Something else has to take place. And so we're looking at how church membership, how that takes place, how do we get into the church. Now, I want to remind you, as I did last week, that what we're talking about here is just nuts and bolts issues of how a church operates. And we do have to talk about such things because eventually the church does have to learn 
these things to continue and what to practice on into the future. So I'm telling you about them. This just happens to be where we land tonight in this study of this acrostic. I thought that we should expand it to talk about uh, all these different issues about church membership. And admittedly, some of the things that we practice in the church are things that are very clearly outlined. We know that. There are certain doctrines that we find in the Word of God that we stand strongly on. We would never omit them. We have to stand strongly on them because they are taught in the Word of God. And so we're dogmatic about those doctrines. But there are other things that we practice as a church that you don't actually find that thing in Scripture. But as a historical matter, we've developed these practices over many centuries. And as long as they're not against Scripture, it's good for the church to use those. These would be things that we develop by tradition. And uh, some of the things that we talk about tonight are going to fall into that category. Some of these things are practiced a little bit differently from church to church. But then again, there are some of them that are remarkably consistent. Even though we can't find a chapter in verse 4 of them, they are remarkably consistent among Baptist churches and have been through the centuries because this is a practice that we developed and churches have used it in order for the good of the gospel of Christ. Now, in relation to that, uh, I want to point out that in the first century, uh, church doctrine was being developed. Christ began the church. Uh, That started in his public ministry. He began the church. But what Christ didn't do was to outline day-to-day practices for the church. He didn't tell us what to do about Sunday school superintendents. He didn't tell us what time church services ought to start. And he didn't tell us how we're to arrange the pews in the church and how the order of the service is to go. Christ didn't say anything about those kinds of things. And there are many doctrines in the New Testament church that Christ didn't go beyond just talking about. You are to uh, go out, you are to witness, you are to teach and you are to baptize, you're to win converts, you're to assemble them and so forth. He's going to have a church. He said he promised to build it. But Jesus didn't actually lay out all of those plans. Those things were developed throughout the New Testament under the ministry of the apostles and others, and they're the ones that gave us church doctrine. And you find those in the New Testament epistles. And then in the ensuing time since the first century, We fine-tuned some of those things. Some traditions have been developed. There are specific ways that we, we do things. And again, there isn't anything wrong with tradition as long as we consider two things about them, and that is that no tradition is to be honored that is contrary to any doctrine that is in Scripture. We can't add to the Word of God in order to support our practices as Roman Catholicism does. And then secondly... There is no preference, there is no tradition that is binding or rises to the level of thus saith the Lord. None of them do unless they have a a scriptural reference or if they have a very strong inference from the scripture. Uh, Unless that, then no tradition is binding. Uh, It's not, uh, I mean, as long as things that we do are not contradictory to scripture, they're going to be okay and... uh, We use those things because we think it's best for the church. And so we may very well be diversified in our practice. Now, we also ought to note that many practices have been developed and have become a consensus among churches in order that we can work together, in order that we can have fellowship together. We ought not to ignore those kinds of practices because they enable us to best accomplish the Lord's work. So we would do very well to look back at historical uh, precedents and draw from them 
when the Lord has blessed his churches through them, they're also going to help us. So in other words, we could say that those practices of the church become Holy Spirit sanctioned, not as a new revelation, because God doesn't give new revelation, but he sanctions them by showing us that they have worked in the church before, that it's good for the church, the church prospers through those. And we don't try to just redo everything. We, we need to use wisdom and sound judgment to further the Lord's work. Now, it's stressful, it's unproductive to try and reinvent things simply because we can do so, because we just don't have any command that says that we can't. But the study is about wisdom. The study is about proper discernment, and these things are good. And so it's good that we have helps like Edward Hiscox's book that was written in the late 19th century called A New Directory for Baptist Churches, that's a good book for us. And I've looked at that and used that somewhat uh, in our outlines of these studies, a few of them. But as I look at that book and see what Baptist practices were in the past, I notice there's some things that we don't do. There's some things in there that I don't want to do. And there's some things in there that I don't think that are best for us to do. And what that shows is the independent nature of the church on deciding matters that don't have chapter and verse for support. So we don't have any associational ties beyond voluntary cooperation with other churches. And so that means we're not going to be 100% in agreement or have a 100% consensus of practice. It doesn't necessarily mean that one church to the other is wrong. It just means we don't agree on how it should be done. So that's kind of introductory material that helps to get our thinking straight. And if you ask me about some of these things that we'll talk about tonight, and you say, well, well, give me a scripture reference for that, I won't be able to. Some of them I can't do that. There's not a chapter and verse for them. But that doesn't mean that they're wrong. I think that these are things that can be inferred and we can use discernment with them. We can use wisdom for the good of the body. So let's, uh, let's start by doing this. Let's run through the outline uh, that we've had thus far to bring us up to date. We first of all talked about association in membership. And that part of the discussion was about the Bible's command for membership that we are to baptize and make disciples. We're to band them together in the fellowship of the gospel. And so whenever you have a group of new disciples in a city, in a neighborhood, uh, you have a complete body of Christ when they are organized into a church in that locality. They are covenanted together to exercise the Lord's commission and to perpetuate his work as the church. Next, we talk about qualifications for membership. The S in the acrostic is about a saved church membership, so that would be first. Salvation is the chief requirement for those that would become part of the Lord's church. Baptism then comes next. Baptism is a public confession of Christ. And then after baptism, there is holiness of the Christian life that follows that. And so if you have baptized people that are not holy people, sanctified people, if that's not developed in a person who says that he's a Christian, then all you have is a wet, unregenerate sinner. So you have to have salvation, you have to have baptism, and then there's holiness that is required, and that's good for the church. Now, thirdly, we talked about admission to membership, and this is where we are tonight. The subject is admission to membership, and we're discussing ways that people get into the church. How do you get admitted? How do you get membership in the church? And we talked about a couple of these ways already. The first one was that we get into the church by baptism. Now, that's obvious to us. We've just discussed that. 
If someone comes for membership, then we inquire about their salvation and we want to know about their baptism. And what I'm talking about here is not a new convert that, that comes to us for baptism. Somebody's just got saved like we had this morning. That's not the case that I'm talking about. But I'm speaking of the person, how that person will get admitted to the church um, who has received baptism from someone else. Now, those that we baptize, of course, are admitted into the fellowship of the church upon that baptism, the authority of ours as a New Testament church to baptize them. So this is really about somebody, what I want to discuss here, is about someone who comes from another church and they desire membership in our church. Some of them come from churches that we don't recognize as true churches and therefore we don't recognize their baptisms. Some of them would be people who come and They've been baptized with some form of baptism, maybe, you know, the sprinkling and so forth. They've been baptized as a baby. They have infant baptism. Then we have people who come to us and their baptism is good. It's proper and their baptisms are valid. And so the answer to the question of how that person gets into the church, uh, we proceed according to membership based upon the answers that we get to these questions. When there are credible professions of faith, and when a person has been properly baptized, we can take them into the church. And if we find out that their baptism is not good, then under the authority of this church, as a true church, we'll baptize them and bring them into our fellowship. So that's one way that you get into the church. You get in by your baptism. Now, we accept baptisms that are from churches that are of like faith in order to us, but we don't accept any others. Now, we studied baptism a few months ago, and I gave you four requirements in a lesson, four scriptural requirements for baptism. And if those four requirements are not met, then the baptism is invalid. Does it matter what the applicant thinks about his baptism? It's whether the baptism is proper according to the scripture. So the scriptures determine if the baptism is valid, and if not, then we administer scriptural baptism. Now, some time ago when I was teaching on this subject, I mentioned there was a young couple who came to us for membership, and they had been baptized by a youth organization. And so I told them, well, that's not acceptable to us. Uh, we're going to have to baptize you again under the authority of this church. Well, they didn't like the idea. They didn't agree with us, and so they decided to leave. Uh, we parted company with them. And uh, we've lost quite a few prospects because of those types of things, that we won't accept baptisms that are invalid, even though, as I said a moment ago, the applicant may think it's just fine. If it's not according to the Scriptures, we're not going to compromise what the Word of God says and just to get members into the church. So those were people that, that just left us because uh, they didn't stay in the church and they didn't become members because of the baptism question. I was listening to a sermon on baptism that Lino gave me. Uh, this was one that was preached by John MacArthur. And you know, most of you know how, uh, in many things, I respect John MacArthur. And in his message, he said that nobody preaches about baptism anymore. And he said, it's been a long, long time since I heard a sermon about baptism. And then he commented that baptism is not mentioned in large evangelistic meetings any longer. That in revival services and so on, it's not mentioned. And he said, well, there aren't any baptisms at the end of those meetings and as I was listening to that, I, find, I found myself talking back to the earphones and saying, well, evangelistic crusades have no authority to baptize. 
And so we don't expect them to baptize. They shouldn't baptize because baptism is a church ordinance. I don't think he was listening. He didn't stop to argue with me on the point. But we do, need, we do need to preach baptism for sure. We need to have this subject before us. It is commanded by Christ. And he did not give authority to anyone but his church to baptize. So the first way then to get into the church is by bapti- baptism. We will baptize people who have just been saved. We'll give them proper baptism. And then if a person comes to us who hasn't received proper baptism of a church, uh, from a church of like faith and order, then we will give them scriptural baptism. Now, the second thing that we looked at of ways to get into the church was by letters of recommendation. We live in a very mobile society. People move around. They go across the city. They move into neighboring towns. They move across the state or across the country. And when they do... They'll look for a new church where they can place their membership and have fellowship with another body of Christians. Now, a letter of recommendation is a way for us to know if a person who comes to us from another place has witnessed a good confession in that previous church and that they would be qualified to be members of ours. And we believe that there is a spiritual or scriptural precedent for that. We looked at that in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and also in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. In the first century, because of persecution, uh, this was a very important thing that people needed to know, that Christians or people that applied for membership from other towns, other areas of that part of the world, they had to be sure that they were actually true believers in Jesus Christ. Because of this, this persecution, you might have a person who was trying to infiltrate the church. You might have somebody that was trying to tear the church down, report them to authorities. And as we know, there were many false prophets... The Bible says many false prophets, uh, uh, John talked about that, Paul talked about it, and others. Uh, so there were many false prophets out there, so they had to be sure that people they were receiving into the church were actually true Christians, that they were genuine. So what a person would do is when he got ready to go to another place and take up membership and fellowship with another body of Christians, that he would take a letter of commendation from the church that he used to be a member of, And he would take that and he would show it to the body of Christians that he was going to. And this letter would say, well, this is a real, genuine Christian, a real believer in Jesus Christ. We can recommend him to you. And then that letter could also be used to tell if the baptism of that person was good. And Baptists held on to that practice for centuries. We made it a habit that we would exchange letters between churches so that members transferring from one place to another would be in good standing and We would know that. We would know the former church was all right. And we'd want to know things like, are there disciplinary problems that are involved? Is that an issue? We don't want to receive another church's headache. So letters of recommendations were were, were good and they were used. That was the standard in the past. That was always done. Still today, there are many Southern Baptist churches that use that method and they pass letters uh, between each other. But among other Baptists, The practice of sending letters between churches has fallen on hard times. And there's a reason for that. And it's because we have a lot of trouble maintaining knowledge of other churches. We're no longer sure that we can actually depend upon a letter that we receive from another church. That they are actually a true church or that their word is good. And that's because there's so many Baptist churches that have gone into apostasy that we just don't have a way of keeping up with them. And so we don't know if their word or their baptisms are good. So we rarely see a letter of recommendation anymore. 
But oddly enough, in the same week, just a couple of weeks ago, three weeks ago, that I was working on this message and getting it ready, we received a letter from another Baptist church in Texas asking for us to grant a letter of recommendation, a transfer of letter, for some people that used to be members of our church. Now, unfortunately, I couldn't bring that letter to the church because these folks had not been a member here since 2013. So we couldn't grant the letter in that incident. Uh, but, but I thought it was kind of odd that I haven't preached on this subject for years, and yet in the very same week that I'm getting ready to preach on it, we receive a letter, uh, asked to be granted a letter. So I thought that was kind of an unusual thing. So that's the first requ- request for a letter that I'd seen in quite some time. I thought it was a strange coincidence that it would come at this particular time. So we couldn't grant that letter, which leads me then to the next way of membership. What are you going to do if churches aren't, ex- aren't exchanging letters any longer? How is somebody going to get into another Baptist church? Well, that brings us to the third method of getting into the church, and that is what we call by statement of faith. Sometimes people will leave the membership of a good church like those people that I just mentioned. They're saved and they're baptized. All of that's good. But for one reason or another, they've lost their membership. The church that they're going to doesn't have a need to rebaptize them because their baptism is good. And so if they give a credible testimony of faith and a proper baptism, they can be received into the church. So it's possible then for a person to be admitted to the church by his own statement of faith. And that's the way that most people become members of our church today when they come from churches that are of like faith. So we don't write for a letter unless someone asks us to do so. Well, is that a method that has problems? Well, it certainly does. It has problems because we have to depend upon the truthfulness of the applicant. We trust that the baptism is valid because they say it is. And the problem might be that they would become members of the church without proper baptism. That is admittedly a problem. And since it's a problem, there are some churches that insist on baptizing everyone who comes from them from another church. Now, all non-Baptists would be baptized anyway, but they also rebaptize those who come from Baptist churches that are not members of a church that are already, that's already known to them. Now, the American Baptist Association practices that. Um, they'll not accept a baptism from our church, even though, in most cases, we would from theirs. They'll not receive or grant letters to us or from us because they don't recognize us as a true Baptist church. A few years ago, I went round and round on this with one of the pastors of an ABA church. And uh, even though that I could prove to this pastor the history of our church, and I could, I could prove that we have doctrinal agreement on baptism and on the Lord's Supper, and I could prove that we're of like faith uh, as far as salvation, that it's by grace through faith, I could prove all of those things. But still, he wouldn't grant the letter of transfer to our church. So that person who was coming to us, That person wanted to have a letter from the former church because they believed in that. That's fine. But the problem is the church wouldn't grant the letter. So how is that person going to get into the church? No letter is going to be granted, so what do you do? Well, there isn't any other way to get in unless we rebaptize them. That's not necessary. We didn't feel that that's necessary. So we would have to take that person into our fellowship based upon their statement of faith. Now, I want to address this particular issue for just a moment. The ABA church said, in effect, 
that our baptisms are not valid. That's, uh, that's pretty much the reason behind the refusal to, to grant us a letter. Now, baptism in that case, of course, as I just said, it wasn't in question. The baptism was good. But there is, in fact, the real issue for the refusal. They don't consider that our baptisms are good, that we're not a true church. And so if you believe that someone is not a true church, there isn't any reason to grant a letter to them or to receive a letter from them. You would only do that with people that are true churches. Well, I'm not willing to go as far as some do that I can say that I can determine whether a Baptist church is or is not a true church. Now, some of them, I can say, well, yeah, well, yes, we, we can determine that. They're so far out uh, because they have a, uh, no gospel in the church. And we can say, well, it's best that we rebaptize people that come from those churches. An example of that would be Rick Warren's church down in, in Southern California. The Saddleback Church that he pastors claims to have affiliation with the Southern Baptist Convention. But I look at what he teaches, and I believe that he falls short of the gospel. I see what he teaches, and I believe that he dishonors the church with interfaith meetings with Muslims and Roman Catholics. And so his affiliation with the Southern Baptist Convention is not good enough for us. So if a person came from that church, we would insist that they be baptized again. And there, of course, there are some other churches that are like that. Uh, when we know that a church is, is Baptist, though, that it ha but it has a social gospel that it doesn't preach the truth, then we don't have any obligation to accept their baptisms. And I think there are cases that we can judge. But I also know this, that by looking at Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3, that there are churches that can go into certain doctrinal error, errors and still maintain their status as, as one of the Lord's churches. We look at that in Revelation. We see that's the case. Now, Jesus warned churches there. They didn't change their practices, that he would remove their status as one of his churches. But until that's done, they could be churches that are actually falling into some sort of a doctrinal error. We don't always know these things. We can't always tell those things. We can look at a church's doctrinal statement, and we might draw some, some conclusions from that, but as I told you last week, that's not always a true indicator because there are churches that don't even know or understand what their statement of faith says. And if they did know, they wouldn't follow it anyway. If they really found out, what we know that to be true. So we can't check out every claim. We don't know every church. We accept baptisms from other Baptist churches based on an individual's statement of faith. And here's the thing about that. We do not believe that the Lord charges us with that error if there is one. And that's because it's up to the individual to be sure that their baptism is correct. Now, many, this has happened before that people have been received into the church by statement of faith. And then when they hear what we teach and when we get on the subject of baptism, we talk about these things about having proper baptism and authorized baptism from a true church. We've had people come and say, well, I wasn't properly baptized. And then they'll ask to be baptized in this church. So let me just say that anybody who's joined the church by a statement of faith, you may be on the church roll, but your actual membership, the actual membership in the Lord's eyes is determined by your obedience to be properly baptized. And if you haven't been, you should be. Now, the problem that we have in this area is that the Bible just simply does not address these questions with a very clear mandate. In New Testament times, I'm sure that there were times 
there's some scenario where an unbaptized person got into the church. As I mentioned a minute ago, we also know that there were false prophets in the church. I mean, that, that's what they were, the apostles were warning about. There are false teachers in the church. They were members, people that aren't saved. And we know that there could be people among our own membership that are not saved. So what do we do about that? Well, the Lord doesn't charge the rest of us that are members of the body with that error if there is one. That is, the onus of that is on that individual membership. And what we need to understand, that the real record of membership is not on a piece of paper in the church office. It's not in a file that's on the church computer. The real record of membership is written in heaven by God himself. Now, we might have it wrong. We might, we're fallible. God isn't. God knows. There's a record in heaven. Listen to these verses in Hebrews. Hebrews 12. But ye are come unto Mount Sion, and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect. So there we find the real record, the one that's written in heaven. And so when you stand before God, and he says, sorry, I don't know you, and your response may be, but my name's on the church roll. It's on Berean Baptist church roll. And he'll say, I'm sorry, that's not the one that counts. It's the record that's in heaven. So don't count on what you've told us. You need to make sure that you're right because God knows your heart. Now let's back up just a little bit to expand on this, to talk about some practices of the church that come to us by way of tradition. We're still here discerning about uh, admission into the church. And some are more rigid about membership and investigation of membership than we are. And you'll notice that we're not harsh. We don't make it especially difficult to get into the church. We strongly stand on proper baptism. That has to be right. We're not going to give that up. And I have baptized people that have previous baptisms. I've done that many times when we've determined that they were invalid. In fact, when I became pastor of the church, after a short time, I found out that we had members of the church that did not have proper baptism. And so I preached on it. And there were some that came forward and they said they needed to be properly baptized. And I'll not get into it now, but I found out that we had a deacon that had not been properly baptized. Now, shortly after I became the pastor, I, I preached on some things that people didn't like. And he was one of them. And so he decided that he was going to leave. But in a conversation that we had before he left, he said that he did not agree with apostolic succession. Well, he didn't actually know what that meant in connection with baptism, unfortunately. Uh, but this, he did say that he didn't agree that baptism, Baptist baptism was necessary to be a part of the Baptist church. Now, you and I look at that and we say, well, that's kind of fundamental, isn't, isn't it? To be a Baptist, don't you have to have Baptist baptism? Well, that, that's pretty clear to us, but many, many Baptists don't think that any longer. Get your baptism anywhere you want to get it. I mean, you know, go down to the, the baptism exchange, I guess, and sign up for your baptism and get it done. No, you've got to have Baptist baptism to get into a Baptist church. That's just the fundamental. So this particular man went and joined another Baptist church. I don't know. If they rebaptize him, I don't know if they even care about his baptism. I don't know if he told them. Maybe they, they don't know at all. Now, let me explain, though, a problem that we have encountered. A few years ago, we had a family 
that came and uh, wanted to join our church, and there were questions about their baptism. They were baptized under the authority of a church in Mexico. That church was no longer in existence, but they were, they were not called a Baptist church, but they had Baptist doctrine. Now, to give you a parallel to that, in the northeastern part of our country, there are many churches that are Bible churches that are Baptist, but they don't use the name. And according to them, the reason that they don't is that the name Baptist does not accurately represent who Baptists are in that area. The, the doctrines of other Baptist churches aren't correct, so they choose not to use the name Baptist, but they use the name Bible Church. Well, they're actually Baptist, even though they don't have the name. So are they true Baptist churches because they don't have the name? Are their baptisms valid? Well, I would have to say that they are. Uh, I believe that it's the doctrine in the church that matters. That's what determines a true church, not the name that's on the door. The name is a human stamp. That can be good in a general sense to tell us what the doctrine is within, but not always. And so the name Baptist on a church is not an indicator for sure that it is a true church. It has to be the doctrine within that determines that. Well, does this mean that we can't accept into membership under any circumstances any others whose name is not Baptist? Well, most landmark churches and even the, or I should say excluding the ABA, most landmark churches would not go that far, and neither would we. And so going back to that family, we determined after much discussion over a few weeks and quite frankly some great personal angst that we would accept their baptism. Now, the best that I can say about that situation is that we're not perfect. We can make mistakes, and in this case, we were wrong. And the Lord knew that we were wrong, and we didn't know it, but later we were proved to be wrong. So you know what happened? The Lord purged the church of those people. Eventually, their disagreements showed up, and they decided that they were going to leave here. So we dismissed them from our fellowship. So the Lord took care of that mistake, and he protected his church. And so I reflected on that. Uh, on the time that I interviewed them, and over several weeks I talked to them about the issue, and really I think that I should have gone with my gut. That I didn't want to do it. They told me that if being baptized again, um, if they had to be baptized again in order for membership here, that they weren't going to do it. They would just move on. And I should have seen by that, I mean, I, I should have known enough to see that rebellious spirit in them that, the father of that family put his will above the will of the church and the advice of the pastor. And I should have said, okay, we'll just see you later. Go find someplace else to become a member. And if they were to come back today and ask to be restored to the fellowship of the church, I would say, no, not unless you receive baptism from this church. That's the only way that we would do it. But let me contrast that with a similar circumstance that we had not long ago. There was another family that came from membership, and likewise, they had not been baptized in a church that had Baptist on the door. Uh, they had received their baptism from one of these churches that I just talked about. It was from a, from a Bible church. And, uh, and I was skeptical about that because of the other incident, and so I told them that... that uh, hold on just a second here. Let me get situated. Get my ears back on. Uh, so I, I thought about this, and... and um, because of the other situation that we had, I, I just told them, no, uh, we, we can't accept your baptism. Uh, we need to baptize you again because the church that you came from is not a Baptist church. And they were very gracious about that, and they were submissive to it. And they said that they would be baptized again. 
But as a, as a matter of follow-up, th- this man called his former pastor and he explained to them the issue. And he just asked about the validity of his baptism. And he told that pastor what I said about it. And so the pastor of that church knew exactly what the problem was. He didn't recognize that as being unreasonable. And so he called me. And he told me that he was a Baptist. And the church was actually a Baptist church, but just didn't use the name. That they were in doctrinal agreement with our church and that they were members of the Fundamental Baptist Fellowship. Well, based on that information, I was satisfied that the baptism of the people was good and so that we could take those people into the church upon their statement of faith. And a critical factor in that decision was the willingness of those people to submit. And if they had said, or if I had said rather, I don't think the evidence is sufficient, I think that we need to baptize you again, then they would have done it. And that just spoke volumes to me about people who understand church authority. I love to baptize people, but I was happy that I didn't have to do it in that particular instance. The Lord knows those that are His. We don't always know that, but the Lord knows those that are His, and the real record of membership is in heaven. So we use wisdom and discernment as best we can. We don't know all the answers to these things, and so we let the Lord sort them out. Now, generally speaking, though, beyond, beyond the issue of baptism, we don't make it a hard thing to do to get into the church. This is not a ritzy country club, even though we are on Country Club Drive. We don't have a country club mentality here. Um, and I don't want to say that our standards aren't high, because they are biblical standards. What I am saying is we don't make it harder to get into the church than the Lord wants to make it. No harder than the Lord requires. Now, having said that, we can look at some practices that I mentioned last time. Uh, We talked a little bit about church votes for admission. What happens if there is someone in the church who objects to admitting someone into membership? What if admitting another member into membership becomes grievous to a person who is already here? And they say, I don't think that we ought to take that person in. Now, I want you to think of this in terms of the human body because... That's the scriptural metaphor. That if you have a sore toe, what does the rest of the body do? You stay off the toe. You, you limp, you shift your weight away from it, and you're sure not going to stomp on it. Now think about this for a minute. You have a sore toe. 98% of your body's good. Fingers don't have a problem. Ears don't hurt. Your eyes don't hurt. Your nose doesn't hurt. Your arms don't hurt. The toe is sore. But the fingers and the ears and the nose and the arms don't say, well, that doesn't affect me. Sore toe, that's not my problem. Stomp on it if you want to. I don't care. No, the rest of the body protects the other parts of the body, doesn't it? It protects your body. So likewise, if we have an objection from a member of the body over someone coming into this body, then what we have to do is slow down. And what we must do is investigate that only if there's only just one member that objects. If there's one person that objects, I'm not going to say, well, sorry, the majority overrules you. No, we don't stomp on the toe. The vote has to be unanimous. Now, here's a question then. Am I saying, technically, am I saying here that one member of the church could keep all other people from joining the church because they don't like it? No, I'm not saying that at all. What I'm saying is, that we do have to slow the process down. We do have to investigate. 
The person may make a valid objection, in which case they may save the church from a lot of heartache. But on the other hand, the objection may be invalid. Maybe that person has a grudge that they shouldn't have. Maybe something else is going on. Maybe they got misinformation. I don't know. So we slow down to investigate that and make sure it's right. It may turn out that it's an invalid objection and the person who makes the objection needs to be corrected. Maybe they need to repent of some sin, some wrong ideas that they have about that person and they need to repent. And if they don't, then we need to censure them if they don't change their vote. So you see what we're trying to achieve here is harmony in the whole body. We, we don't want to invite trouble into the church. And so if you have an objection about someone uh, coming into the church, then you need to be ready to give a reasonable defense for that objection. And, and, but I'll say this, as you hear me say, it, it's been more than 50 years. I've never seen an objection yet. I mean, I've yet to see somebody in the church service say, well, you know, I don't think that person ought to be admitted to the church. Has it happened yet? I, ho- I kind of hope that it doesn't. But if it does, that's the way that we would have to handle it. We would, have to, we would have to respect the objection and check that out. Well, let me return to baptism for just a minute. I, d- I do want to get this in before we, we're out of time. I've, I've kept you over time. But let me get this part in so we can finish up um, this particular part of the lesson. We don't hang baptism out in midair. We do not baptize people who do not become members of the church. And neither do we baptize people for other denominations who want to become members of another denominational church. We, we don't accept their baptisms. We don't expect them to accept ours. Now, when I taught on this before, I, I, I told you that it used to be the practice of the church before I came here that people were baptized and did not become members of the church at that time, but they had to make a separate application to become members of the church. That's wrong. When you baptize people, you take them in to the church. I also had a case where someone came to me and asked me if I would baptize them, but they said, I don't have any intentions of being a part of Brian Baptist Church. I just need you to baptize me because I need to get into a membership of another church. Well, I said, no, we don't baptize people that way. We baptize you, you'll become a member here. So we just don't hang baptism out there. Now that, that's a statement that takes us back to the historical aspect of the church. That true churches are those, only those, that are apostolic. They have to be linked to the New Testament. Now I'm not necessarily speaking of a chain link succession. I'm speaking of a consistent doctrinal link that has remained true until or since the time of Christ. That is impossible with a church that has a human founder. And so Roman, the Roman Catholic Church, Protestant churches have human founders. That separates us from them. So we are not going to transfer membership between Protestant churches, Roman Catholic churches, or anyone else, not anybody who is not a church of like faith and order to the Berean Baptist Church. And we do that because we want to guard the church. We're very particular about who we take in. Well, let me finalize the point by saying that the church should welcome those who come for membership. When all the qualifications are met, then that person is received into the full fellowship of the church. There isn't a probationary period that people have to go through. You're received in the full membership of the church. You're welcome to the communion. You have a seat at the Lord's table, and that's the only way you can get that seat, is to be a member of the Lord's church. And so when a person becomes a member of the church, he comes under the care, the concern, the hospitality, the prayers, 
all of that of the membership of the rest of the church. That person becomes eligible for election to church offices if he meets the requirements of those offices. So that person is loved and accepted as if he had been a member of this church since the very beginning. And that's what you get with church membership. You become a part of a functioning body. It's a blessed privilege that you enjoy. You ought to cherish, you ought to value your church membership for all the blessings and the benefits that come from it. We are members of Christ's church and members in particular. Let's pray. Father, we come to you thanking you, Lord, for our church. Thank you, Lord, for the truth that we learn from the Word of God, what true churches are. And although, Lord, churches have differences of practices on some of the things that we've talked about tonight, uh, we do know that there is that true record of membership in heaven, that we have a responsibility to know that our baptism is good, that we are to come under the authority of New Testament churches for uh, our baptism, and that's the only way that it will be good. And then, Lord, as we become members of the church, we're to become functioning members, to use the gifts that you have given us for the good of your body. So, Lord, help us to do that. Help us to be a church in fellowship with the love, care, and concern for every member of your body. Bless us, Lord. We give you the praise for it all. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronan Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.